This is the first Sunday of the month and that means it's the uh, occasion for considering together the uh, Dhamma teaching on the calendar page, our Forest Hunger calendar, where this year um, we have teachings, quotes from translations of some of the teachings Ajahn Chah gave. And on the January page is a very uh, uh, lively image of Lumpur Liam, the the senior monk who inherited the running of Wat Papong after Ajahn Chah passed away. And the teaching that uh, the message there says that you will be fully able to live in the world and find peace even in the midst of that which is not peaceful. So that's always a helpful thing to be reminded. And this world can seem really insane at times, and here's somebody saying that you can find sanity. There is sanity amidst the insanity. Uh, there is the possibility of finding peace right in the midst of that which is unpeaceful. Last Friday, New Year's Eve, I spoke about how the uh, Buddha gave the teaching that we were commenting on the the Dhammapada verse 95 and how the Buddha said it's quite possible to abandon all confused reactions and, and become as patient as the earth, unintimidated by anger, unshaken as a pillar and unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool and this image of imperturbability I think is something that uh, we can very skillfully um, uh, establish in our hearts and minds and when we're confronted with that which is unpeaceful where do we turn? Which direction do we look in? to find peace. Where do we go to find peace? Because if we go in the wrong direction, then we're going to be disappointed. And and surely many of us, or all of us, will have uh, various times in our life been disappointed. And is that because the spiritual teachings are not true? Is there something wrong with us? Or is it that we were not really uh, listening to what the teachings were saying? There's uh, a well-known piece of scripture from the Christian tradition where Jesus is recorded as saying, my peace I give unto you, peace that the world cannot give. Uh, When when Jesus is saying this, peace that the world cannot give, 
it, it, you know, if you don't listen carefully, it could sound like a, a put-down, like the world is, you know, it's all, it's all bad, it's all a mess, and we read what Ajahn Chah says about the world and what Buddhists say about the world. And so I think we could uh, usefully contemplate this carefully and see what's really being referred to. Because that picture of Ajahn Liam, I think he's working a table saw, building the new temple at, uh, or the new meeting hall at Wat Nana Chat. And certainly the sound of a table saw is not peaceful. The sparks flying and, and uh, the, all the responsibilities that come with managing a project like that. And if you, you read the translations of Ajahn Chah's teachings and the collective works uh, of Ajahn Chah, you, you could find him talking there about how if he didn't have right view, he couldn't have done the job that he was doing. The, uh, people sometimes think that, well, if you live in a monastery, it's all nice and it's okay for these monks and, and uh, priests and so on to talk about you know, peace and, and how wonderful life can be. But that's all right because they don't have a lot to disturb them. Well, um, and Ajahn Shah points out that that's not how it is at all. There's always plenty, particularly if you're in a position of leadership, you know, lots of disciples, lots of monks and nuns to be paying attention to, and and uh, in Ajahn Chah's case, and well, many of our monasteries these days as well, there's lots of building work to do, lots of responsibilities, and and then you have the regulations to be paying attention to, as well as your own physical condition, and all the many things that can create apparent confusion and disruption and uh, disturb the peace. And yet the great teachers tell us that there's still peace. Peace is, from their perspective, peace is always there. That's the message. Peace is always there. From their perspective, there's no problem with the world at all. There's nothing wrong with the world at all. The problem is the way we mistakenly relate to the world. The sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions, which in uh, Buddhist parlance is the world, all the sense objects. There's nothing wrong with any of it. It's just so. It's, It's always been this way, is now, never shall be, in a state of flux. It's always changing. It's unstable. And there's nothing wrong with it being that way. To say there's something wrong with it is like saying, for instance, that there's something wrong with lemons being sour. What's the thing with lemons? A lemon, the sourness of a lemon is not an issue unless we bite it, right? We bite a lemon and you've got this intense experience in your mouth. Or chilies, you know. Chilies, yeah. some of these, like especially these little weeny ones, that really real like rocket fuel, real little mean things. And you you bite into them, and you expect it to be sweet. Where's the problem? <laughs> the, the, the problem is not with the chili. There never was a problem with the chili. There never was a problem with the lemon. There never was a problem with the world, unless we relate to it in a certain way whereby we're expecting it to give us something that it can't give. 
So in the, Jesus' teaching there, my peace, that's the peace of the selfless heart, the compassionate being, my peace I give unto you, peace that the world cannot give. You know, Ajahn Chah's teaching there where it says, you'll be fully able to find peace in the world, even in the midst of that which is not peaceful. How is that? It's because they're not relating to the world, expecting it to be anything other than it is. For these beings, their relationship to the world is one of knowing it as it is. The refuge that, as Buddhists, we're encouraged to cultivate the refuge of mindfulness and wise reflection. And that's our refuge, that's our practice, that's our spiritual practice. Wisdom and compassion is the goal. Basically, they're the same thing, they're like the front and the back of the hand. You can talk about the wisdom of the liberated heart or the compassion of the liberated heart. They are the goal, that's the goal of practice, but... And that's inherently peaceful. That's what we're being told. But how do we how do we realise that? If we are talking the language of sociology or politics or economics, then we could be talking about how we need to change the world. And that's what that language is for. That language is so as to manipulate the worldly conditions to make it more agreeable, less disagreeable. And that's obviously got its place. But if we're talking the language of the heart, spiritual language, then we're talking about understanding the nature of the world. And part of understanding the nature of the world is seeing the world clearly. Or again, as a quoting Ajahn Chah before, if we don't see clearly, if he didn't have right view, what in the Pali language is samaditi, if he didn't have clear seeing, then he wouldn't have been able to carry all the responsibilities that he had. He wouldn't have been able to live peacefully in the midst of that which is unpeaceful because he would have been relating to the world, expecting it to be something other than what it can be, other than what it is. In other words, he would have been clinging like the rest of us do. Yeah. Now, even clinging to the world, even clinging to the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not like, you know, we're bad, but we are ill-informed. Yeah. So when we read these spiritual teachings, when we listen to this language of the great teachers, we need to understand that it's not a judgment of the world, but a description. This is a description to say, lemons are sour, or fire is hot. That's not a value judgment, is it? It's a description. Like that lovely log fire we've got in our reception room. Marvellous little machine it is there. Wonderful. Heats up the whole house, and, and we're really, really grateful for that machine. However... If you touch it, <laughs> you won't feel grateful. You feel very unhappy. But where's the problem? The problem's not with the, the fire. The problem's not with the stove. The problem is how we relate to the stove. So our longing for peace, our longing for sanity, and 
in the midst of the insanity that we're so regularly confronted with, externally and internally, our longing for peacefulness is perfectly natural, perfectly understandable. It's like longing not to be burnt. We need to be very careful in how we engage that longing. If we engage that longing in a way whereby we think we've got to change the world and make the world completely peaceful, then we're going to be disappointed. The world can never be, has never been, will never be other than this. So the classic Buddhist teachings, which you again will have probably heard many times before, is that in the Pali language is this expression, Sabe Sankara Anicca, all Sabe Sankara formed things, all formations, all that is constructed. Sabe Sankara Anichati, Anicca, changing, unstable, or sometimes called impermanent. Unstable is a word that works for me. All conditioned things are unstable. Sabe Sankara Anichati, Yadha Panyaya Pasati. Yadha panyaya pasati. Panya was wisdom or discernment. Yadha panyaya pasati. If you see this, pasati is the same as like the word, we all know the word, vipassana. Vipassana, seeing into, seeing through the way things appear to be, the way things actually are. The exercise of vipassana. Yadha panyaya pasati. Seeing this with discernment, atani bindati dukhe. You will be disillusioned or disenchanted by the drama of apparent reality. Yadha panyaya pasati atta nibindati duke. Nibindati is this word which means you were disenchanted or it, it was, it, it's sometimes associated with the word boredom. In other words, like you're not excited anymore. It's kind of like. Who needs it? Atani binati dukkha. In other words, the dukkha of the world, the drama of apparent reality is no longer fascinating. So when we discern the reality of the inherent instability of all conditions, then we stop looking for satisfaction in that which is inherently unsatisfactory. Or in this case, the anicca, which is inherently unstable. There's another verse which similarly says, Sabe sankara dukati yadha panyaya pasati atani bindati dukai esamago visudhya. The last line there for both those verses, esamago visudhya, which means this esamago, this is the path for purification. So if we're looking at purifying consciousness, correcting the distortions, dealing with the warps in our consciousness, which means that we give rise to greed, aversion and delusion, which spoil this potentially wonderful opportunity that we have, if we'd like to be free from this disfigurement that causes us to feel inherently limited all the time, this is it, this is the path. This is is what leads to wisdom, this is what leads to purity, this is what leads to the realisation of wisdom and compassion. So... These are the kind of teachings that are given out by spiritual teachers over and over again, not as a judgment of the world, not as a judgment of the world of things, sankharas, or all sankharas, all things. The Buddha is saying they're all anicca, they're all dukkha, they're all unstable, they're all 
this word dukkha, which we talked about the other day, inherently limited. All conditioned things are inherently limited. If we cling to something that's limited and we want to find complete satisfaction, we will be disappointed. Sometimes people get the wrong end of the stick with the Buddha's teachings and and think that he's making some sort of a value judgment on life, say all life is suffering. The Buddha didn't say all life is suffering. Uh, Suffering is a a very loaded word and should be relegated to the, in this context anyway, should be relegated to the Victorian era when the first translations were done. It doesn't doesn't connect with the essence of the message that the Buddha was giving when he said all conditions are dukkha. What he's saying is that fire always burns if you put your hand into it. That's the nature of fire. The world, if we cling to it, will always cause us to feel frustrated. But that's not a problem with the world. It just means that trying to find peace by clinging to worldly conditions will make us feel disappointed. So with Lumpur Liam leaning over that table saw there and sparks going in every direction and and all the other responsibilities and, and hassles that he has to deal with, and saying, you, know, you will be fully able, or Ajahn Chah is saying, you'll be fully able to find peace in this world, right here and now in this world, uh, even amidst that which is not peaceful, is not because he turned the table saw off and that all the monks were cooperating and the weather was nice and, and nobody hassled them. In other words, it wasn't because worldly conditions were suddenly turned into being all thoroughly agreeable. No, it was because of the right view, the right perspective, right view, samaditi, right view, right seeing. If you see with distortion, those of us that wear glasses know what that means. That's the experience of us with our habitual tendencies of clinging that again as I was speaking about on Friday night it was perfectly appropriate when we were children to cling to things because we don't have mature faculties but as we grow up and our faculties mature then we need to use these faculties and I don't just mean physical faculties I mean the spiritual faculties we want to use these faculties to investigate the reality the actuality of life like when we lose something that we love, that we're fond of, and we then have this feeling of frustration or limitation. Where's the problem? The problem is that we were clinging. The problem isn't with that which we lost. All things will deteriorate and eventually disappear, including us, including this body and mind. So what matters if we're seeking sanity in the midst of insanity is that we look in the right direction we don't just try to make the whole world sane that's probably not going to happen we could try but if we are trying well then we're talking as I said before the language of sociology or anthropology or psychology or economics or politics but if we're listening to the language of the heart, what we're interested in is understanding the inherent limitations in the world. Yeah. And that's the cultivation of this, uh, talking about the right view, samaditi. So how do we train in the direction? How do we 
how do we practice to cultivate this way of seeing? How do we train in everyday life and formal practice so as to move in the direction of abiding as this which is inherently peaceful? That's what these great beings are doing. The reason they're chilled, the reason they're okay, even when everything around them is crazy, is because they're not caught up in the craziness. They are abiding as the space, as the understanding, as the seeing, as the awareness in which all of this is arising and ceasing. You know, the point of the reason of pointing out everything is is changing, is unstable, is that that helps us let go of that. The reason for pointing out that everything is inherently limited, sabe sankara dukkati, sabe sankara anichati, the reason for saying these things is so we don't cling to them. It's not an ultimate position. It's not saying absolutely everything. Because the Buddha didn't say absolutely all reality is unsatisfactory and unstable. He didn't say all dhamma is hopeless. <laughs> didn't say that. He just said that the conditioned dhamma, the sankata dhamma, the constructed phenomena, the stuff of the world, but the unconstructed, that which was there in the beginning is now and ever shall be, that is not inherently inadequate. So this is what the teachings and the teachers are pointing towards. Then this is what we're invited to have confidence in, to trust in this possibility of abiding as that which is inherently peaceful, that which is inherently adequate, and not make the mistake of trying to make lemons sweet or to be able to pick up a frying pan off the stove with, you know, with your hand without burning yourself. That's not going to happen. What we need to do is to learn to protect ourselves from our own unawareness and then again, so we have all the teachings about the, the moral precepts and spiritual companions, ways of protecting ourselves until if or when we find the discernment, which means we can see that which is inherently peaceful, we don't suffer any more than we have to. And this is important. The habits that we pick up by getting it wrong over and over again, the consequence of misperceiving reality and clinging is that we act in ways that tend to make things worse. We indulge in, in our habits rather than investigating our habits, which is what the invitation is. We develop awareness and mindfulness and wise reflection. When something happens in a way whereby we experience suffering, we experience frustration, we experience disappointment, the invitation is to use our faculties to look into it, to get interested in it and say, what's, what's going on here? What's really going on here? Yeah. Not just do what we've done in the past, because that didn't work. Not just do what other people do, which is complain. You know, often we, people complaining about the world complaining about politicians, complaining about all religions are hopeless, all politicians are hopeless. <laughs> uh, 
it's very easy to get caught up in complaining or comparing. Compulsive comparing is an unhelpful habit. Setting conditions up against each other, setting up like against dislike. If we have a, have a habit of following our likes and clinging to our liking and then following our dislikes and clinging to our dislikes, then what happens as a result is the mind just gets caught up and always comparing. Saying, this is good, this is bad. And it happens also, of course, in the spiritual world, in the spiritual community. There have been people visiting here who, who these days... I guess it's it's quite normal. A lot of people just travel around going from one tradition to another, one teacher to another, one technique to another, one spiritual system to another. And and when when sometimes when you listen to these people talking, it's well, it's really painful to hear because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's it's like. It's like people living on junk food and then wondering why they feel sick. Junk food, you know, if we just live on junk food, it's not going to be healthy. And if we're living, we've got this intelligence which is able to discriminate, is able to compare, but if we're caught up in it, if we think that by clinging to our discriminative intelligence we're going to find peace, then we're going to be sadly disappointed. And so... Sometimes there have been people visiting here recently where I've, I've imposed a condition on their being here. I said, well, you can stay here, but the terms are you're not allowed to talk about any of the other spiritual communities you visited. It really doesn't help when people are just following this tendency of always comparing. And, and, and I get these reports sometimes from down the Kusala house there. Some of the guests going on about, oh... Chithurst Monastery, it's like this, and, and Amrawati, oh, that's much better at Amrawati. They've got so much space, and the abbot lets you do whatever you want at Amrawati. And, and then the Vajrayanas, the Vajrayanas, they're going on about compassion, and that's so much nicer than the 32 parts, for goodness sake. Who wants to contemplate our super meditation? And Thailand, that's the real thing. You go to Thailand and, yeah, there's a few mystique, mosquitoes. And, but the teachings are so real, not this diluted Buddhism light thing that has been turned out in the West. And, well, I hear all this and it, it, it just, it's, it's really tedious. This is not, this is not practice. This is when people don't understand practice. You, know, you can go and live with the Mahayanas and talk about compassion. But the idea of picking and choosing, which is what we habitually and compulsively can do if we're expecting our discriminative intelligence to give us what we're looking for, this compulsive picking and choosing and comparing and judging, it's an, it's an abuse of the faculty of discriminative intelligence. Yeah. So the approach that we have to the world of sense contacts, whether it's, as I said, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the touches and mental impressions, including the spiritual concepts and understandings and mental impressions, the way we relate to them is what determines our experience of them. I remember when I was about to be ordained as a monk in Thailand, 38, 39 years ago, going on 40 years ago, 
it was a time when there was a, a whole lot of, of um, well, prapfarang, they call them in Thailand. This is like not Thai monks. They're, they're from America or England or France or Indonesia or Japan. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of these monks who'd been there for a few years, and they were all getting ready to disrobe, and they were all fed up with with their practice, and it hadn't given them what they're looking for, and they were leaving, and I was just arriving new, and I'd done my first meditation retreat, and I was so inspired and full of enthusiasm, and, and I was just looking for which teacher, which monastery should I go to, and obviously I didn't want to waste this wonderful opportunity, so I was comparing and I was listening. Hopefully I wasn't judging too much, but I do remember that that these bunch of guys who were disrobing, they were, they were so caught up in, in uh, criticism. Oh, this Ajahn, he, he just teaches samadhi, he doesn't teach vipassana, or that one, well, his insight only goes so far, and the monks just sit around eating sugar and drinking cocoa in the evening, they don't really meditate, and whatever, there's this conversation going on, criticizing these, these wonderful, dedicated teachers and, and monasteries and I didn't listen to it too much, I just thought well they obviously missed the point these guys didn't know what they were doing and I do remember meeting one of uh, Ajahn Chah's disciples at the time and I asked him you know, how does Ajahn Chah explain what is right view, you know, this is like the first fact of the Eightfold Path Samaditi, this is really this is foundational, this is basic, and I, if I just get this one sorted. So how does Ajahn Chah explain right view? And I'd heard the, and read these other teachers and their explanations. And, and this monk, he said, Ajahn Chah says right view is not attaching to any views and opinions. Oh, that touches the spot. Yeah. That points to the relationship to the view, not just the view. Yes, we can read in the books what the Buddha said about right view and, and the importance of, of an understanding and, and orienting our practice around the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and, and having confidence in the teachings on karma and rebirth. And, and so we can have a, a sense of what was described as right view. But according to Ajahn Chah, even the right view of the Buddha, if you cling to it, it's wrong view. And so that takes us back to the place where we really can make a difference. The place where we're really practicing is where we can look at that. Is this way I'm relating to life, all the experiences, including my so-called spiritual experiences, is the way I'm relating to them leading to true peace? And if all we're doing is comparing and criticizing, then no, it's not. It's not taking us there. But that's abusing the Buddha's teachings. The teachings on right view are there to encourage us to learn to see that all clinging, all trying to find identity in any conditioned aspect of existence, any aspect of conditioned reality, finding identity in that is going to lead us to the experience of being limited, frustrated, disappointed, because it's all unstable. And when we see that, if we see it with discernment, yadha panyaya pasati, if we see this with discernment, then the, the involvement with the world of dukkha, with a world of inherent limitations, just won't be inspiring anymore. So we don't have to understand all this. We've just got to get basically 
grow up. Not believe in Santa Claus anymore. That's what it means. You know, not believe that somebody's looking after us and going to do our work for us. Yeah. But actually dare to experience the reality of insecurity. That's when we find our identity and that which is inherently insecure, we will feel insecure. But we're supposed to feel insecure. And what growing up spiritually means is the willingness to admit that's what we're doing. And little by little, experiencing the benefit of letting go. And when the letting go happens, well then, to some degree, maybe we start to taste the appropriateness of that. That relating to life in a non-clinging way, in a careful way, in a respectful way, in an appreciative way, is the way to purification, is the way to find that which is inherently peaceful. So for these great realized beings, their experience of peacefulness is not because the world that they live in is full of peaceful experiences, but because they're abiding as the knowing of the world. They're abiding as the space in which the world arises and ceases. They know their identity to be the ocean, and so they don't care what waves pass across the ocean. Those that are caught up in picking and choosing and comparing and judging... Those are the ones that are just surfing around in the waves and getting seasick. So long as we're still identified as the activity of consciousness, the liking and disliking, then we will feel seasick a lot of the time. But the invitation is to go into the depths, to inquire deeper, and to find the stillness that's there at the depth of the ocean. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.